You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to our October edition of the Simulcast Journal Club. I'm joined again by Ben Simon. How are you, Ben? Yeah, really good. It's nice to be back. It feels like a long time for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah, maybe we've been busy doing other things. All right, so as per usual, we're going to jump into the case of the month as well as offer you some uh, articles from the literature. But before we did that, I've got two very important announcements and they're things that we hope our listeners might do to help out the simulation world and the discussions in it. The first thing is a little bit of news that the Pearls Group, and I'm using that term loosely, have developed a debriefing tool using some instructional design techniques. So this is Adam Cheng and Walter Epic's articles on the Pearls framework for debriefing, which many of us are using. And based on the survey that I've done recently, I know a lot of people are using. And uh, a group have just published in Academic Medicine a infographic that you can download in posters or for your phone. And again, our friend uh, Komal Bajaj from New York has been the lead author on that. But where you can go to get these things to download is on debrief to learn So that's debrief2learn.org forward slash pearls dash debriefing dash tool forward slash. And we'll put the link in the show notes. And you can get all of those things down there free to download. And more importantly, Adam Chang really wants you to give some feedback on them because I think they're rather hoping there'll be an iterative approach to these very nice uh, little posters. I don't know if you've seen them, Ben, but I think they look great. So yeah, I think they're fantastic. I'm looking forward to actually trying them out. Okay, excellent. And then the second piece of news I've got is really an encouragement to join in an online discussion not on the Simulcast website, but on our friends' website over at Alium, Academic Life in Emergency Medicine. As you know, uh, Ben drew a lot of his inspiration in our journal club cases from the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine Medic series. That's Medical Education in Cases. They do a lot of cases across the spectrum in medical education, but this month they're doing the case of the difficult debrief. And this is a case that we've jointly put together with uh, Brent Toma and the crew over at Academic Life. And uh, Ben helped write the case. And there's a really vibrant discussion going on online. And Simulcast will be doing a rap podcast with a couple of the expert discussants and case writers in the next couple of weeks. So if you want to go and see that, it's www.aliem.com and it comes up in the first uh, couple of posts. It's the case of the difficult debrief. All right, Ben, we better hop into the article of the month. Uh, lots of discussion about simulated patients. Tell us about the article and the discussion and your little summary of it. Yeah, so it was a pretty good month. We discussed an article called The Association of Standardized Patient Educators Standards of Best Practice, which is by Karen Lewis et al. And it was published in June 2017 in Advances in Simulation. And essentially, uh, the article aims to provide clear and practical guidelines for educators who work with simulated patients. And it's a really critically important document, I reckon, for simulation educators, um, which can be used as both what they describe as a set of aspirational standards, uh, but also as an introduction to the field for those who don't work with simulated patients. So for myself, it was really useful just to get a kind of a masterclass in how to do it well. 
essentially, I'm not going to go into heaps of details about how the guidelines were developed, but it was a stepwise process that consulted a lot of experts from North America and then got sent around to a bunch of international experts as well. Um, and the guidelines are basically structured within five domains, which are safe work environment, case development, SP training, program management, and professional development. And then those domains are informed by five values, which are safety, quality, professionalism, accountability, and collaboration. But I think for me, if I try and summarize the article, you can't kind of summarize every sort of dot point of every table, but really at the heart of this article is the fact that these standards are a call to understand the contributions that SPs can make to a simulation curriculum and to highlight their position as educators in their own right rather than actors or props that you're going to add to a scenario for added realism. I think that's a really important reframe. And for some of us, uh, as as embarrassing as it might be, it's a bit of a mental leap. I know certainly as a pediatrician, for example, uh, we mostly deal with mannequins. And so taking that step both to using simulated patients and then recognizing uh, the independent value as educators was a really big kind of blind spot for me. So once that frame shift's been made, though, it uh, really becomes inherently logical that we've got to incorporate sim patient educators not only into scenarios, but everything else that we do in simulation. And so these guidelines in particular uh, talk about incorporating SPs into scenario design, into debriefing, and in professional development. And I think uh, certainly after watching your SPs at work, uh, it was definitely a revelation for me. How about you, Vic? Uh, yeah, I think as you say we haven't had that much about simulated patients on simulcast and it's a shame because of course it's a really important modality in simulation and one which captures some learning objectives in a way that certainly mannequins cannot. I think these standards articles are just so important. I admire the people that do them because I think it's really hard work. They generally have to get a lot of people together and work through issues that aren't as much fun as just running your sims. But I take my hat off them because it really allows the rest of us to hold up something against what we do, give us some um, modes of really practical improvement and also obviously guides research as well when people start to think how do we evaluate simulation program uh, simulated patient programs absolutely and i really like that phrase that they included of aspirational standards because i think uh they are a beautiful set of guidelines uh, and i certainly hope to meet them one day but uh for some of us it's going to be a big learning progress process so i was a little nervous putting this on the blog vic i guess um I probably shouldn't have been, but I know uh, this is probably the second of these really big statement papers that we've done on the Journal Club. The first being that um, the additions to the consort and strobe um, statements that we had earlier in, at the very start of the Journal Club in 2016. Um, and the, the blog responses that we got were just fantastic. Um, so it was one of the more enthusiastic months that we've had. There was really kind of widespread enthusiasm for the standards of best practice uh, with a lot of clinician educators such as myself and Rowan Dyes sort of expressing appreciation for the number of ways that it opened blind spots regarding our practice. And I think particularly resonant themes for us were things like the article stance that SPs be actively involved in scenario design and debriefing and ongoing faculty development. Some of us, um, Rowan, for example, really voiced concerns about how high quality they were and that for some of us being fairly new to it, that uh, it was quite intimidating. And I think that highlighted a really powerful part of our journal club, which was that 
once Rowan acknowledged that he was having trouble with this and, and voiced that opinion online, we got this really amazing floodgate of experts open up and uh, they started contributing their expertise and ideas regarding how to start out with SP integration and uh, bringing it into a simulation curriculum. Simulcast. Yeah, so we had some great tips. We had Jessica Stokes Parish drop by uh, and she provided a number of pieces of advice, like things like, you know, just giving you a little bit of a framework for starting. So assess what you do have, establish some processes, establish some levels about what your SPs are doing, um, and then get started, continue, continually review. And she was able to kind of describe a, a two-year process, I think, where she's now providing SP integration into a lot of simulation curriculums. Nimat Alsaba offered a really important reframe, which was that she said, look, the important question when working with SPs is what are we trying to achieve in that sim and she argued that a significant portion of scenarios are really best serviced by incorporating an SP and using part task trainers for manual procedures that are involved within the scenario. And she provided a couple of pieces of practical advice, including that if finance is an issue to recruit and train SPs at the beginning, um, then you could consider approaching medical nursing and paramedic schools and asking for volunteers because there'll be this nice mutual benefit. And then really try and think about the sustainability of your program and how are you going to keep the SPs interested and committed rather than just thinking about the service that they bring to you. We're pretty privileged as kind of the parade of experts just continued on and Deborah Nestel dropped into the discussion. Uh, she really highlighted the importance of considering SPs as co-teachers. Uh, and she said, and I'm going to quote her, Although SPs are simulators, they are not objects to be used, but functioning as experts. And in my ideal word, world offering perspectives as patients and she highlighted that that's very different from offering clinician perspectives i think that kind of philosophy was most strongly highlighted by our expert of the month karen ma and she really put it best when she explained look i'm a real human who possibly won't remember what you say i may not even understand however i will know and i will always remember how you made me feel and i think that sort of beautifully encapsulated the value that SPs can bring to a scenario when we're trying to teach our, our med students and things to connect with real patients. Yeah, I agree. And I think a uh, lovely discussion there, but I would agree with that. As I took my own journey transitioning from doing all mannequin sim to doing quite a lot of simulated patient work. I'd have to say on a final note, I thought it should be noted that the case we had this month of a simulation nerd who felt very deeply lonely in high school appeared to very strongly re resonate with uh, a pretty high proportion of our sim educators. So I'm not sure what that means about us all, but uh, I think it's nice that we found our tribe a little further down the road. Yeah, look, if no one's been to the blog and looked at that case yet you really should it's ben simon having the time of his life writing a funny <laughs> reflection on the 80s look if there's nothing else you take away from this month you should go and read that case i'll say no more <laughs> thanks for the props so in the spirit of incorporating um sps more into your educational curriculum and acknowledging them as experts. We actually asked um, one of your colleagues, Karen Ma, who's a very experienced SP, for her thoughts on the article. Um, and you've known Karen for a long time now, Vic? Yeah, she was at Bond uh, way before I was, and she's been one of the uh, earliest adopters and biggest enthusiasts of taking the SP work in history taking into the world of sick patient simulation. So I'm indebted to Karen at a number of levels. Yeah, so she's been working for 11 years, I think, as a simulated patient um, and been working with uh, the School of Medicine at Bond since its inception. 
Um, and she is so passionate when I watch her interacting with the medical students when I come down to work with you guys. It's just really inspirational. So we asked Karen what she thought, and she critiques the article, but in particular she highlights what resonated for her. Um, And I think for her it was really the importance of training for feedback, and she relates a number of experiences where she could just take those – she wishes she could just take those words back that came out of her mouth, and I think – That resonates with all of us. And she says, look, I would like to think that we're united in working towards the evolution of best practices. And I do believe whilst providing a safe, realistic educational environment, effective feedback is the big challenge both in teaching it and giving it. So I think we've all got something to contribute to each other in our kind of journey at becoming the perfect debriefers. Yes, I agree. Well, thank you, Ben. Excellent uh, month's discussion. Join the discussion with Simulcast Journal Club. All right, so just a quick dip into a few other articles that seem to be around in the literature. And for the first one I chose, it complements this topic well, but takes a different approach. So this is an article in this month's Medical Teacher, and the title of it is The Pillars of Well-Constructed Simulated Patient Programs, A Qualitative Study with Experienced Educators by Pritchard et al. And I thought this would be a nice one because it sort of contrasts to the approach taken with the standards uh, and yet is trying to get at the same thing, what makes for good SP-based simulation. So there, uh, I'll just quote their aim, uh, to investigate how experienced SP educators support SPs in providing SP-based education for health professional students. And they say at the outset, there's limited evidence for best practice at the moment. And looking at the timelines, they make reference to the standards being developed at roughly the time this uh, research was being done. And they make reference to many of the same areas that the standards did, which is there needs to be good practice in recruitment, selection, scenarios themselves, SP training and management, and also research and quality improvement. So the way they did this, uh, by contrast to the sort of consensus approach in the standards, is they actually did qualitative interviews with experienced SP educators who they recruited essentially through organisations of relevance uh, and through author links, so people who'd written articles about SP education. And the reason I chose this article was really twofold. One is it does give us in the content a bit of a how-to for getting started in SP simulation. But it's also, I think, a little bit of a how-to in how to approach thematic analysis. In the article, they give a nice description of how they did their thematic analysis. And again, without pretending to be any kind of expert, I'm aware enough to know that essentially a lot of rubbish gets said around qualitative research. And also people throw around these terms like thematic analysis fairly loosely. And I think there's just a couple of paragraphs in here that really describe and they use the um, reference of Braun and Clark, which is a common one used for essentially taking a grounded theory approach in thematic analysis. But they just describe it really nicely. And for those of us who are sort of more junior in the world of qualitative research, it's a good couple of paragraphs to read. Uh, In terms of what they actually found, again, they present that quite nicely, as a lot of people do when they do thematic analysis in a table. And essentially the table one in the article is full of the take-home messages and they outline the themes that they took away from the interviews and then elaborate on those through sub-themes 
and components and then end up with an operational column on possible approaches. So I'll just run through one of the themes, which is preparing SPs, so getting them ready to for a particular specific scenario. And the sub-themes in that category are explaining the patient's story, demonstrating the interaction, and actually facilitating the scenario-specific rehearsal. So again, already you can just tell this is, this is good stuff because it's getting to what you actually need to do. And then it essentially goes through the detail of that and talks about approaches like providing written information, having discussions, using videos, having the SPs observe others do simulations, having the educators demonstrate it, uh, going through dry runs, even using sort of games as a way of um, practicing those things. So again, you just get some really practical advice that comes from people that know what they're doing. So essentially with this article, think about it as a, something to read if you're thinking about starting or if you're already doing it and want to improve, but also think about it as a sort of qualitative research primer as well. Uh, ben, how did you find this article? Um, I really enjoyed it. And I think for me, it felt like a little bit of a pigeon pair with uh, Thinking on Your Feet, the which was a, kind of a masterclass in demonstrating thematic analysis about debriefing and looking at how experts um, are currently debriefing. And I think um, for me, it was just... A, I was just super jealous at how good they can do this thematic analysis, but um, I really admired the fact that it showed me a different way of getting that baseline where they kind of acknowledge, look, we don't have a lot of data on this. There's not a lot of evidence for it. So rather than just sending around a bunch of like it sales or surveys or whatever, they've gone this very different approach of doing a really rich um, qualitative analysis. And I thought it was beautiful. Yeah, and I like what you've got to say there. And unsurprisingly, uh, Deborah Nestel was the senior author, last author on both Thinking on Your Feet, Christian Crow's article, as well as this one. Simulcast. Thought I'd then go right to the other side of the spectrum and look at an article that's got really solid quantitative methods and uh, have a look at that one. So, this is an article by Jeffrey Barsuk at AL entitled Simulation-Based Mastery Learning for Thoracentesis Skills Improves Patient Outcomes, a Randomised Trial. And this was published in Academic Medicine, again, just in the last month or so. And Jeff Barsik is part of the group at Northwestern in Chicago that includes Bill McGahee and a number of others who've done a lot of work in this area of procedural skills, simulation and training. And more specifically, a lot of work in how that translates to patient outcomes. And so why I chose this article was it was, uh, as I said, a quantitative approach to looking at the benefit of simulation, but also because it really, unlike many medical education articles, strove to look at these level four outcomes, i.e. patient level, or what Bill McGahey would call T3 outcomes, the translational ones. So uh, just to give a little bit of context here, surprise, surprise, procedures have complications. They're not very good for patients and related to the current funding models for healthcare in the US, they now cost institutions a lot of money. So, uh, and also procedures are less frequently done by those in training. So these two things set us up for really needing to make sure our procedural skills are as good as they can be. And so the authors state their aims to evaluate the effect of doing a simulation-based mastery learning 
uh, for thoracentesis as a quality improvement strategy to reduce complications. And for those who might not do this procedure, this is essentially putting a needle into the chest to drain some fluid out that might have accumulated there, either as a way of making a diagnosis about what's wrong with the patient or as a therapeutic procedure because that fluid might be preventing people breathing properly. And it definitely has some accepted and recognized complications such as a pneumothorax, a hemothorax, or re-expansion pulmonary edema, i.e. when you take the fluid out of the chest, the lung re-expands a bit too quickly and can cause uh, fluids to shift a bit dramatically and unpleasantly for the patient. So uh, certainly a procedure that I would say I don't do that much anymore. And Ben, I imagine in peds you do it even less. No, I was just having flashbacks while you were talking about it to my adult year when I gave someone reinflation pulmonary edema. It's very stressful. If there was a method to get away with not giving someone that, that would be swell. All right. Sorry, I didn't really mean to give you that uh, PTSD experience. <laughs> I'm over-exaggerating. <laughs> anyway, Reflecting comfortably. <laughs> you're not alone because the article provides some um, uh, reference points for how frequent these these complications are and they certainly are not uncommon, shall we say. So, as I said, that's what they set themselves up for and essentially what they did was they had two groups of doctors in training, one of whom received their training intervention and one of whom didn't or at least didn't initially and so they served as the control group. And the group that got the training, and they've described this with others, because this group has published stuff, particularly on central lines, also on lumbar punctures. They've really looked quite systematically at a number of procedures and how they go about this training. And the training is pretty similar in each case. It's this mastery learning approach where there's a baseline skills assessment, people watch a video on a lecture, and then they do this very specific deliberate practice where They've got a very well-defined, this is how you need to do the procedure. This will be a minimum passing score for doing it. And the residents get to go and practice that. And it doesn't matter how many times you practice, but you have to achieve this minimum passing score. So the people that did the training, that's what they got. One of the other good things that they have is they've got a great patient database, which allows them then to capture all the patients in their institution that have this procedure done and whether they have an iatrogenic pneumothorax, a hemothorax, or this re-expansion pulmonary edema. Now, without going into all the methods, it's a fairly classic randomized control trial. There's a group that has the intervention, a group that doesn't. And then they look at, well, is there a statistically significant difference in the complications between those who've been trained this way and those that haven't? And to summarize their outcomes overly simply, they really struggled to find a difference uh, and that difference wasn't very good. But to be honest, that's probably because these procedures aren't actually done that often and because, in fact, the complications aren't that many, even for the people who are not that well trained. So I'll just sort of pause there before I elaborate on it, Ben, but I did think they went to a lot of work and yet it's actually quite hard to prove a difference. It looked like it and it, I did... I think the original impression I got from reading kind of the introduction was a little bit cynical because you could just see those p-values being stretched a little bit more than you'd like with significance. Um, and it was more a trend, if anything. But I do get, you know, sometimes you can 
do good research and it's showing a trend and is that not still of value to report even if you don't hit that magical, you know, P of 0.05? I mean, it's fairly arbitrary at the end of the day. It was still a valuable discussion to be had. Yeah, I think valuable, but as my quantitative researchers say, a p-value is a p-value. It's not plausible. It either is significant or not. Uh, There were a couple of interesting things in the detail, and I suppose one of the things that was disappointing from a quantitative perspective is they did their power calculation based on pneumothorax rates, and yet when they actually reported their main outcome – it was a combined endpoint that they didn't exactly power the initial uh, study for. And so always when it's not exactly how they set it up, uh, you know that maybe these differences weren't as great. One of the things I think was really significant in this is that the residents aren't really doing these procedures anymore. So of course they looked across the whole institution's procedures and just to give you some idea about who's doing these thoracentesis procedures, The vast majority, so 500 of them were done by interventional radiology. Nearly 300 of them were done by pulmonary medicine. And only about 120-odd were done by the residents, half of which were the trained group and half of which weren't. So I think that also complicated things because the vast majority of these are not even done by this group of providers. So it sort of muddied the waters a little bit in trying to understand the differences between the two groups. But, uh, you know, certainly the simulation-based mastery learning group had very few complications, but so did the group that were traditionally trained. So I think my takeaway from this is, once again, this is really hard research to do. It's really important to do. Um, But at the end of the day, it sometimes can be really difficult to demonstrate a difference at the patient level, even with really excellent training. Um, I think I just would have liked a little more detail about what the traditional training was. And I, and I might just be looking at this article as a single article and maybe in the context of all those other papers you've mentioned it makes sense. But there wasn't there was discussion about what the intervention group did, but not a lot of discussion about what traditional teaching meant. Yeah, and I guess that sort of harks back to some of the things we've talked about before. Like if you have simulation-based teaching, if you're comparing it to nothing, then it should be better. Uh, but maybe... The other group were actually having quite good teaching. It just wasn't a mastery learning approach or maybe they truly were, uh, you know, really relying on the training they already had before they came into the rotation. So, Yeah, I think if they'd gotten sort of good data, it would still be hard to know what to replicate because you don't know what you're comparing to. But no, impressive stuff trying to move to that patient outcomes part. Yeah, and uh, I would encourage people to go back because certainly Jeff Barsick's article on central lines is really a landmark paper because in that they had a much bigger difference between the group who were trained and the group who weren't. And Elaine Cohen, who's also on this article, did a uh, cost evaluation of that and really found that the institution saved a lot of money even compared to the cost of the very intensive training that they did. So it's worth looking at that group's work in general and I guess I'm sure there'll be more to come on this topic and other procedures. All right and then the um, final article I want to look at because of course it's been done by some of our friends is an article in Advances in Simulation Uh, by Melanie Barlow and her colleagues at the MARTA as well as their collaborators from the Centre for Medical Simulation. And this article is uh, titled Documentation Framework for Healthcare Simulation Quality Improvement Activities. 
And again, there's open access because it's in advances in simulation. And it's really, again, a good one to pick because its methodology is different again, and it's very much focused on quality improvement methods. So to give you an outline in their intro, they say that this was an example of an approach to identify latent system issues using live medical simulation and the development of an associated documentation framework. So they're long words for saying, if you want to go and test some systems in a hospital, how do you do it? And by the way, how do you report on that for the people that really need to know who might be either funding or taking the next step of improving those systems. And for me, I think this is pretty important, particularly when I talk to people who are doing in situ simulation, there's so much enthusiasm for, you know, we can test the systems, we can test the department. And I think it does, but I think it's been really hard for us to capture what we learn in those simulations other than at a very basic coalface level. And I've certainly been interested to see what people are doing in terms of reporting those things. And I think this is the first article that I've seen look at this in a lot of depth. Uh, I know that you've been involved with this group a little bit and a few others, Ben, but uh, your thoughts on these sort of reporting issues and systems interrogation, as it were, using SIM? Yeah, well, I think you're right. I certainly to be candid about my experiences, it would be very much a haphazard approach of the people who are in the sim learning a bit about the system, but it being escalated up to the people who can change that system sort of on a fairly variable manner. And I think I really liked that these guys really worked on a tool to synthesize that information and make sure that it got to the right place. I think it's a lot to reflect on. Yeah, definitely. So how they approached it, and they give us a little bit of background, but uh, their group were preparing to open a new facility, and unsurprisingly, based on previous experience, successful experience they'd had, they were using simulation to test this new facility prior to opening. And essentially, they looked to a quality improvement frameworks uh, as to how to do that and how to report that. And they, the paper is structured uh, as to how they approach this in phases as a sort of project uh, management approach. And as I said, I think the thing to read or the reason to read this is that it offers us a quality improvement approach and in particular the tools, the language and the frameworks that I don't think are necessarily familiar to those of us more predominantly educators, but I think perhaps we should be. And the two frameworks they use, one of which might be familiar because it's so well known, and that's the Plan, Do, Study, Act uh, framework from Don Berwick way back when he first started writing about quality improvement. And that allowed them to develop a thing that they called the simulation-based quality improvement tool, which uh, they give an example of the paper, and that's one of the ways that they sort of designed how you use simulation to approach this testing the facility. The second framework they use, and I promise this is the last acronym that we will uh, put in here, is something that if you've done a bit more quality improvement, you might be familiar with, and that is the healthcare failure modes effect analysis. And this is sort of taking it to the next level, which is 
pretty heavy quality improvement stuff and looking at the risks identified and trying to sort of rank and quantify them a little bit so that then they can be reported almost as a sort of matrix. And so that allowed them to develop a um, report summary that then they could present to their senior uh, administrators saying we found this and this is how we've kind of analysed it. So it's a lot more fine grained than certainly anything that I've ever done. So I'm not going to go into the detail of that. I think it's if you're interested it's really worth a read because I haven't seen these two worlds connected so well anywhere else. And I think that the tools themselves are very um, useful to have a look at and they may well be adaptable for our own context even if we don't want to use that much detail. I think the one other little thing I found really interesting here was how effectively they'd managed to harness some consumer involvement in this process. So they really recruited people from the community to help them run through the simulations and got some very useful feedback from them as well. So I haven't quite done it justice, Ben, but uh, interested in your thoughts on this paper. Oh, I just thought it was a fairly awe-inspiring monster of a paper, to be honest. And um, just looking at what they'd achieved was uh, fairly awe-inspiring. Um, I actually had written down the same point, though, about um, incorporating or the SPs that they chose. So I really like the fact that rather than just hire anyone to be an SP, they actually utilized actual patients and trained them up. Um and they describe this kind of double whammy of great patient insights. And then they could combine that with also a positive patient experience where they knew that they were advocating for better healthcare as well. Uh, I haven't seen that done before. No, I agree. So, um, yeah, plenty to read in there. It's not a very long paper. And uh, as I said, they give a few, a, a practical example in particular related to uh, labor and delivery that I think allows you to see these um, tools being used in a very pragmatic sense. So uh, thank you very much to that group for offering that up to us. All right, Ben, well, there are all the papers I had for this month. Uh, what's coming up? What are we doing next month? So uh, next month is going to be our last paper of the year because we usually wind down over Christmas. So uh, I'm going to try and clickbait everyone with a Jenny Rudolph article uh, to keep the discussion going. So. Um, I guess now that we've been doing this for a year and a half, I'm really wanting to work towards making sure that we're covering a bit of a curriculum and looking at a lot of classic papers. And so this month, we're going to be looking at establishing a safe container for learning and simulation, which is from Simulation in Healthcare um, in 2014. And it's by Rudolph, uh, Jenny Rudolph, Dan Raymar, and uh, Robert Simon. And I guess this is a very pivotal uh, paper for a lot of educators. Uh, but I really want to kind of take a step back and look at how the article was received then. And I guess I'm just curious about whether we've maybe misread or overinterpreted the original goals of the authors of this article, because I kind of feel like the safe container, the definition of it is starting to leak a little bit. And uh, it certainly gets quoted a lot. I'm not sure it's always in the right way. So I think we've got a good case. I've got two sim, well, a sim educator and her husband who are trying to teach their, uh, teach their son how to be a bit more independent in playing while uh, getting him to take some risks climbing a tree. And uh, I don't know if I've been too obtuse, but uh, we'll see where the discussion takes us. Wow, that's clickbait, mate. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, it will be interesting. Well, to add to that, to add to that, we've got Chris Nixon's going to be our expert as well. So if that's not clickbait, I don't know what is, you know. All right. It's there's nothing. You're no one if you're not on this uh, simulcast journal club discussion over the next month. I'd say, but like you, I'll be interested because 
I, I think you do see that sometimes is this really excellent idea is um, out there but then it can be interpreted differently by people and you're right uh, safe doesn't necessarily mean no risk or no challenge and I'm sure Jenny would not want us to think that but um, how it gets interpreted is interesting. All right, Ben, well, we'll look forward to it and uh, look forward to chatting with you in a month and we'll see what everyone's had to say uh, in response. Absolutely. Can't wait. Have a good night. Simulcast.